quicker than a wildfire. I mean, quicker than Usain Bolt? Yeah, he's faster than a wildfire, right? I mean, I think so. He's pretty freaking fast. Uh, here, let me just hang on. I'm going to look this up. Here, let me see. Okay, yeah. Let's see here. Um, is Usain Bolt faster than a wildfire? Oh, instant. Instant result. Well, it says here there actually was a race set up in a non-disclosed location to see if he could, in fact, outrun a fire. That is to see if Usain Bolt... Did you hear me? Usain Bolt! <laughs> see if he could outrun a wildfire as uh, some part of a study, I guess, somewhere. But um, yeah, okay. looks like uh, there's a paywall. Oh, shit. The results are private private well you'd think those results would be plastered everywhere you know usain bolt faster than fire right there would probably be like a stamp made for it or something oh yeah like one of those memorial coins wait he's not dead is he what no i don't holy shit he didn't make it did he ah fuck man he did not outrun the wildfire man oh no no i think i think he's alive bro oh you meant a commemorative coin Oh, yes, that's right. Commemorative, like to commemorate. Yes, yes. Yes, damn. That would have been some shit right there, man. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> Why don't we play out that scene for the listeners, you know? Yeah, that's a great idea. How do you want to do this? Oh, fuck. Let's just lay it out. Sure. All right. So like this. Usain Bolt is going to outrun a wildfire for some vastly important research project for sleep or whatever. And you know that the event would be packed with environmentalist school children protesting because of global warming and all that crap. Of course. You know, they got to troll. The, the old troll Greta Thunberg. She'd be hissing oh, yeah. and smashing at people until they paid attention. Oh, man. She'd be there like throwing her freaking tears at the flames trying to put out the fire. <laughs> Only for her Instagram or TikTok, though. Right, right. she's back to chain-smoking non-filters, <laughs> burning tires at the junkyard of Miley Cyrus, yeah. just huffing straight CFCs from cans of hairspray, straight oh, whippets. Dude, fuck yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> so check it out. So you have the flag guy at the line, right, where Usain is going to start running from. The, yeah. You know, uh, and to his left is where the fire is just about to catch the grass and debris on fire because it's already been burning <laughs> uphill behind him, ready? You know, right, for right. him ready to get going. Yeah, they started it, you know, they had to like, okay, it's coming, man, just to yep. make it fair. Yeah. Exactly. And, and earlier in the day, before the race, the event coordinators had tossed in like random bits of fuel and stuff, like buckets of gasoline over here and sacks of some black powder over there and some flammable things everywhere, you know, like opened propane tanks and other things like that. So, you know, like when the fire reaches it, it'll add the necessary danger, which will instill into Usain Bolt searing fear. Right. Oh, look, Usain is at the line. Here comes the fire. There it goes, and they're off. Look at Usain go. He's running like his life depends on it. Look at how fast that fire's catching up with him. That's not good. Oh my god, did you see that? That propane tank just blew up right as Usain was running next to it. Is, is he alright? Well, he looks alright. He still has both legs. Oh, oh, he's kind of hobbling a bit. There's a field of randomly placed sacks of black powder and stacks of shredded newspapers. I think, I think he'll make it through. Good God. Amazing. He is going for it. My God. So much smoke. Oh, look. He's, he's still moving uphill. Well, he's actually crawling uphill now, but he does seem determined God. to make it. He's definitely determined to outrun this fire, people. And it looks like the fire is only about four feet oh, wow. behind Usain Bolt now. What an explosion that was. I don't know, man. Oh, look, there's a coordinator or someone. He's uh, heading down to him. What is that in his hands? Is that a can of gasoline? Is he pouring gas directly onto Usain Bolt? 
It sure looks that way, Coop. I think I think he's giving a thumbs up to everyone. Looks like he's trying to say something now. Then he needs to start moving and quit dilly-dallying. That fire is right there. It could very well win the race, leaving Usain Bolt in second place. Look, he's on the move again. And now he's scrambling uphill on all fours. He's not down and out yet, folks. He is drenched in gasoline. Usain! Usain! He's not looking all that great, folks. It appears he has lost speed. That fire is now dangerously close now, Coop. Is he raising his arm? Is this the moment he calls for help? Is that a... Is that... It is! Oh, it's, it's a, a thumbs, thumbs up, up, everyone. He's still in the game, and he's back on the move, Scott. This is incredible. Oh, he's got this all day. Wait, wait a second. Uh-oh. And, uh-oh, Coop, he's not moving. It looks mm. like the wind has now oh, no. picked up, and it's moving uphill, which is only bad news for Usain Bolt. Oh, no. Usain Bolt, you have to get up. You have to get up. Go, Unfortunately, Usain. this is getting really ugly really quick. Hurry, Usain. That fire is coming fast, man. My God. Oh, look. Whoever that is is back, and now he has something else in his hands. What is that, Scott? I'm not sure, but now he's putting whatever it is on to Usain Bolt yet again. It's definitely some sort of material. Perhaps it's a fire retardant material of some kind designed to save him if that fire happens to engulf him. Which it very well could at this point, Coop. I think... God damn. Saint, you have to run, man. You need to go fast. Oh, hey, it's a coordinator again, and now he's... What? What is he doing? Is he trying to light him on fire, Scott? Coop, it looks like the coordinator has a lighter, and he is indeed trying to light Usain Bolt on fire. Usain, get out of there, man. Go, go, go. It is not looking good over there, folks. Not looking too good at all. Um, yeah. Man, wow. He's, uh, he does not look like he's in the best of conditions right now, Coop. No, he does not, Scott. They may have to call in the medics. Damn, that's no good. We were telling him. Yeah, we were. I mean, we were saying, go, go, Usain Bolt, go. Yeah, man, I was all like, you gotta watch out for the explosions, Usain Bolt. Is he still going? Just keep moving, Usain. Keep moving. Ah, oh, wow. damn, did you see that? That was a massive explosion. I sure hope he's all right. Who's this walking our way? It, that looks like an expert, Scott. Maybe they're going to give us the bad news. Hey, uh, guys. I'm supposed to tell you that I have all the details here in this box. Everything you're ever going to want and need about the results of the race between Usain Bolt and a wildfire. It's all right here, in this box. You want to know who won the race, right? Was it Usain Bolt or was it the wildfire? Hell yeah, let's see those results, expert. Well, I'll tell you, but you'll need to pay first. A fucking paywall. God damn it. Man, they get you every time. Every time. Even in person. You want this information? It's all here. It could be all yours. You just need to pay the discounted price of $19.99. Oh, wait. We're slashing that price down. I'm getting... Uh, this is just in. To a limited time offer of an astonishing... Get this. It's $9.99. But don't wait a second longer. Time is running out. No, god damn it. We don't want your bullshit box with your bullshit lies. Yeah, fuck this. It never wakes. Well, here, let's do this. How fast is Usain Bolt? Okay, so like 27.5 miles per hour or about 37.5 kilometers an hour. Okay, now, how fast is a wild... Oops, delete, 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 fire. 
So typically, fire will burn in a forest at about six miles per hour or about 9.5 kilometers an hour. And on grassland, it goes a little faster, but it's it's the uphill part that you need to be worried about because fire travels about 14.5 miles per hour uphill or 22.5 kilometers an hour, so, if not faster, uphill. So what you're saying is that Usain Bolt can indeed outrun a fire indefinitely if it's on flat ground. He could outrun a fire uphill just as easily. It's just a matter of how far he needs to run uphill because at some point he just can't go any further as we just witnessed. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that was rough, man. He's safe when the world burns. The rest of us, we won't be so lucky. So, yeah. We won't be so lucky indeed. I couldn't have said it better myself, but you know what I can say pretty damn well? What's that? The following Coop tier listeners, welcome to the Paranautica Podcast. I'm Scott, and with me, as always, is the only getting older but more refined, and for some, the silver fox type, more handsome. That's right. It's Coop. Oh, we are here in today's that. studio, which is actually an old gutted-out Geo Metro that Wayne Dale probably stole a long time ago, specifically to record today's episode. That's great planning, Wayne Dale. Yeah, we're just talking the body of the car here, and it's raised on cinder blocks. Safely, though, safely, we don't need OSHA coming by and dinging us on dangerous workplace. No, we do not. Wait, aren't you OSHA certified? It's true, I am. But aren't you too? Oh, um, actually, well, we should talk about that later. I, all right, well, <laughs> you know, I can't really do much other than threaten my employers and file reports directly to OSHA, which anyone can do. So I'm not sure exactly what the certification really does. Uh, maybe we should do it just to just to try it out. But uh, anyways, ladies and germs, just really quick. What we do here on this show is we cover all sorts of topics as long as they're fucked up in some way or another. We cover serial killers, small town murders, unsolved cases, unsolved mysteries, the paranormal, UFOs, and aliens. And one day we'll get to cryptids. But yeah, we also cover crazy historical events, which are topics that we love to cover as well. Yeah, we cover it all and we put one episode out each week, usually by Thursday, but more likely by Tuesday or Wednesday. And if you'd like to help out the podcast, you can check out our Spotify page and scroll down to the Help Us Out button. Or you can head on over to our Facebook page where people can make a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation through either Ko-Fi or PayPal. Well, Scott... I think it's time for the segment that has been directly linked to an increase in childbirth. <laughs> yes. Published in the latest Science Journal Plus. Yes, indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, grease your nubbins. I'm so stoked. I've been waiting for this all fucking week, man. It's time for the GOAT. Heck to the yes, dear listeners. Perk your ears up for the most popular segment that any radio show, and I mean any, television program podcast morse code telegram or any other means of mass communication has ever broadcast through the airwaves and or cables grab your velcro shoe straps stretch them tight clench your furry teeth it's time for tray portray zip to beep bap to yeah so today's tray portray is going to be a little different than the usual ganoush and that is because there is something absolutely massive going on within the United States government at this time. And whether it's legitimate or some sort of psyops, the fact of the matter is that it's a huge leap forward in getting the government to tell us what we already know. For those of you who stay in the loop, you already know that this coming Wednesday, that is the 26th of July, 2023, there is going to be a congressional hearing led by none other than Republican representative and Tennessee native Tim Burchett. Tim, who serves on the House Committees on Oversight and Accountability 
Foreign Affairs and Transportation and Infrastructure, will be joined by his colleague Anna Paulina Luna out of Florida. This hearing will be on the very real issues of UFOs or UAPs. Tim Burchett himself prefers the colloquial and former term, as do we here at the Paranautica Podcast. Good old UFOs, man. Yeah. UFOs. So, as we know, the issue of UFOs has been a hot topic in the public eye since at least 1947, after the famed Roswell crash, which we will not get into here. And don't forget that there were other crashes of similar craft before that date. Exactly. So over the five decades since those first news reports of retrieved flying saucers in New Mexico, the government has consistently denied, 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 and sprinkled all that denial with a little bit more denial, which really adds a peculiar flavor to the denial in my humble, never-to-be-humble opinion. Sure does. Time and time again. Does it? (laughs) It sure does. Time and time again, despite all of the irrefutable video evidence of UFOs that the average person has filmed all across the country and around this world, including some of the most reputable eyewitnesses in high-ranking positions within the government, the same government, by the way, that is pulling the strings to give orders from way up high, have consistently refused to admit UFOs or aliens or any intelligent life outside of the planet actually exists, despite all the evidence right in our faces that greatly suggests the contrary. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous the extent that they have gone to try to cover it up for so many years. But thanks to the improving technology such as cameras people have been able to capture picture perfect evidence that we are not alone here on this earth and again i've said it before on other episodes i firmly believe that a lot of the objects that people are filming today are in fact reverse engineered craft that the u.s government or other governments have developed with the assistance of various branches of military um, from retrieved ufo crash debris from sites such as roswell but Those man-made craft do not account for every instance of something being captured on camera. I do believe many of them are, though. And that is entirely possible, but it can't account for every instance of something being captured. I mean, it's so frequent, and it's in such, you know, different locations across the globe. Yeah. There's got to be something going on here, man. David Grush, 36 years old, is a former U.S. intelligence official turned whistleblower. In an interview with The Debrief on June 5th, 2023, he disclosed that he was part of a task force led by the Department of the Navy under the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. This has since been reorganized and is now part of the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Center, which does things but also includes doing investigations into objects that operate underwater, such as USOs or unidentified submerged objects. He said that he and his team were responsible for the recovery of crashed objects both underwater and on land. David said that the recovery of these objects, which ranged from partial fragments to fully intact craft or vehicles, had been going on for decades and still persists to this very day. Well, not only that, but just to give you some background on David Grush... He is a decorated former combat officer who served in Afghanistan and is also a veteran of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, or the NGA, as well as the National Reconnaissance Office, or the NRO. Now, as part of the NGA, he served as Senior Intelligence Capabilities Integration Officer, which comes with top secret and secret clearance. 
He was also the senior technical advisor for the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Analysis Transmedium Issues. So, I mean, this guy had tons of experience in this department. He was in multiple facets of this whole program. And as a senior intelligence officer in the NRO, he had the equivalent rank of a colonel. So he wasn't some low-level goon. No, man. He was up there. He was up there. He's definitely an important guy. Absolutely. This guy is legit. He is. And he's currently going through some type of lawsuit because he was very clearly being retaliated against for being a whistleblower. But more importantly here is that this congressional hearing that we were talking about is going to take place on Wednesday, July 26th, 2023. And there will be three credible witnesses that are scheduled to give testimony in regards to UFOs and what we call Earlians. Earlians, yes. And it's going to be really interesting because the government, I mean, I'm guessing, this is just my opinion, I'm guessing they're going to come out swinging and be like, well, aren't you actually a little bit crazy to be making those claims? You know, I don't know what they're going to say, but it's, it's going to be something ridiculous. It will be. So one of those witnesses is our boy David Grush. Yes, yes he is. The other two are Ryan Graves, who is a former Navy pilot, and the executive director of Americans for Safe Aerospace. And the other one is David Fravor, who is a former commanding officer of the Black Aces Squadron with the U.S. Navy. Yeah, and Ryan Graves was actually the first active duty pilot who testified in front of Congress in a previous hearing in which he spoke about an experience he and his squadron had with UFOs. And he is also serving on a NASA panel that is studying UFOs. He was actually trying to bring attention to what he perceived as being an aerial threat to fighter pilots such as himself. Yeah, right. It's it's like he wasn't even interested in the fact that there are these very real UFOs occupying the skies, going at ridiculous speeds all around him, you know, aliens and such. But rather that he felt that they were just presenting themselves as a hazard to him and the boys, you know, while they were trying to fly safely in their fabulous jets. Oh, yeah. Shit, man. It's synonymous with those of us who drive in the city and have to deal with bicycles. You know what I mean? It's, oh. it's kind of the same thing. They're just hazards, bro. God. No matter how many shiny, flashy the objects worst. they have all over the place, I still can't see them, which is probably more of a me problem. Um, probably because I'm too busy texting and driving. Whoa, just hey. kidding, guys. Not cool, man. No, because I just reach over. You're like, hey, grab the steering wheel. I got a text, so I just grab the steering wheel from the passenger <laughs> yeah, right. side. Yeah, I just use one knee. I just get yeah. a knee up there, and you know, yeah, I cook a meal, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, I missed my exit. Um, but yeah, so it's like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. But bringing it back to the hearing, you know, uh, what is important here really is that this is actually happening. This hearing in Congress, they're, they're not trying to stonewall it. They're going to go ahead with the hearing. And to go off of what you were saying, there is so much video evidence right now and so many eyewitnesses with varying reports from all walks of life that have come forward. It was just a matter of time before the dam broke and the government could not hold back the floodwaters any longer. So again, with what you were saying before, and on the point that the government knew that the time for disclosure would eventually happen, wouldn't it be safe to say that they'd already developed a plan for disclosure like far ahead of time? I'd say As so. in like, they're going to come to this meeting prepared and ready with a preset and pre-framed narrative? You know what I mean? I think so. Yeah, man, definitely. I mean, the government certainly has multiple pre-planned responses to nearly probably all issues or situations that either have already happened or will happen. But more specifically, as it pertains to UFOs, Project Blue Book was developed 
back in the day. And Linda Moulton Howe, who I adore, was in an episode of Ancient Aliens many years ago on this and showed that the government was indeed well aware of UFOs and aliens. And they actually had like pamphlets that just laid out their preparations for not only an invasion of sorts, but also for the eventual disclosure that we are facing now. Right, right. And they've always avoided disclosure by saying things like, oh, you guys can't handle this yet with your puny little brains and pea-sized intelligence. <laughs> Which, I mean, sure. <laughs> you know, yeah. that might be true for some. For some, but, for some. I mean, come on, man. Quit jacking us around. We know the truth. Yeah, quit dicking around already. Quite a- Even Tim Burchett says that he believes that people would be less panicked than the old government wants the people to think they'd be. And now, hold on. Think about that. The government wants us to think that we don't know ourselves. Can you believe it? It's like they want us to be fully reliant, completely dependent on them, sucking on their nips. (laughs) Just begging for a saucer of milk. But, you know, to defend the people's mindset back in the 1940s and 50s, it's that, you know, religion was still a very, very solid foundation in entire communities. And there's just no room for anything but God. You know what I mean? And, you know, we still see it today all over the place, but it was much more of a prevalent mindset back then where, you know, if you were a person of God, then you just simply could not accept the fact that UFOs were real, even if you were staring right at one. And the fact just didn't fit into the dominant religion's narratives either. And people were also being straight up ostracized and ridiculed and financially ruined for even thinking that UFOs or aliens were real. And so people knew what was going to happen to them if they spoke out. So they just kept their mouth shut. I like how Tim Burchett said, why would people panic? Look at the polls. More people believe in UFOs than believe in Congress. Again, this guy spits some truth, man. So, yeah, I think that although there is some psyops going on to manipulate the facts and therefore the public with this, they still have a narrative that they have already planned and laid out. And uh, they're making it happen, you know. It's happening right now. And all we really know at this point is that the government is now sort of pushed to do something about this whole thing before the real, real truth is exposed. Right. So Tim Burchett has said in previous hearings they've had with Congress on the matter that they've always gotten nowhere because those being questioned would always say one of two things, either I don't know or that's classified. And he went on to say that during a visit to the Eglin Air Force Base while he was doing some investigating, that him and his crew were not allowed to talk about UFOs and aliens with the personnel that were there or ask any questions, which is what they were initially promised. So then they went back on it by the time they actually got feet on the ground and said, nope, sorry, we can't talk to you. That's bullshit. He made a pretty, yeah, in the wake of it, he made a pretty damning statement about it. Uh, Well, he made many, but uh, here's one. And he said, quote, this is about power, control, money, greed, and corruption. We're over the target. They know it. If there isn't anything, why the push to cover it up, end quote. Seriously, though, why does the government try so hard to cover something up that they say doesn't even exist? Since the logic is clearly ass-backward, we know that the government is lying and that UFOs and aliens do exist, right? I mean, wouldn't it be so much nicer if the government was like, oh, and in governmental news today, some of our fine officers out there on the front lines have taken more video footage of these craft. America, weigh in. What do you think these are? Let's talk yeah. about it. Let's let's give us... Yeah. Here's our professional breakdown of what we think this is. They should just have a discussion about it. Exactly. An open discussion. Call in live news. Like, call in. 
let's have a discussion. Yeah, and if people <laughs> don't want to hear about it because it freaks them out, they can just turn off the telly or just not yeah. tune in like people do for all sorts of other issues. Exactly. You don't like something, don't look into it. Don't watch it. Don't turn it on. Exactly. And I like what Burchett said about the technology possibly being from some adversary like, uh, I don't know, Russia or China, right? Yeah, he had a lot to say about the people that thought that, um, and it's a great point, too. He said if it was Russia's tech, then they wouldn't be fighting a drawn-out, expensive war with tons of casualties. Putin would have just put an end to it right away with the superior technology. Uh, he's like, he th- believes that Putin's too much of an egomaniac not to flaunt it around like a little shit kid, and just like, he would come out and try to end the war right away. Um, which, I mean, okay, that's a valid point, and I say sure, but also, I mean, it, for any capitalist, we know that the war equals money and a long drawn out conflict means a lot of people are going to stay rich and a lot of other people are going to stay in power. And as far as casualties go, well, Putin doesn't really give a squirrel's ass about a single troop fighting for him. So, you know, I have a rebuttal to that argument. Well, I agree with you on uh, both of those points. And why does the U.S. always have something going on? You know, whether it's an issue with some locals in a distant country stirring up some stuff or whether it's the U.S. just creating something on their own and then sitting back in a game room playing war with Xbox controllers and sipping on box juice, you know, with the little straws, you know, <laughs> much like the 20 plus year mess in Afghanistan. Just to give an example. Yeah, I, I think the why that they have those things always going on is it's it's the military industrial complex, bro. It's money making money. And uh, I think that's the why uh, the military industrial complex, money making money war making money and and america loves to do that and fund both sides as well and this is a whole nother topic of discussion beyond what we're already talking about and despite all of all of these things um the country is currently in a deficit of 31.4 trillion dollars right now with no way out other than being given a clean slate as well oh oh yeah and uh, i i think china is uh working on that Oh, yes. Yes, they are. And speaking of China, that's the other country that people are worried about, saying that this technology that people have been videoing, seeing, reporting belongs to them. But Tim Burchett says of this that if it was China, they'd be controlling us more than they already do. Well, he's got a really good point there. And that's actually pretty crazy to hear that specific statement coming from the lips of a congressman, man, because he's dead serious when he says it. Oh, for sure. I'm sure it's completely true. Also, I mean, he's probably one of the few in Congress that actually does speak at least a little bit of truth and doesn't give a shit. I mean, if he's willing to come out and talk about UFOs in the first place as a congressman, not worried about losing his station. uh, I mean, that says something right there. And he goes on to say, speaking to the government, quit sending us these redacted files. Let the American people see what they show us in private. It's time to get this out in the open. Now, it's pretty interesting to me that the government shows most, if not all, of these high-ranking government officials, these highly classified documents and videos and maybe even actual craft, who knows, but then just turn around and just lie about it all. Yeah, exactly. They like Their introduction lesson is, hey, by the way, these things that you've heard about since you were a child actually yeah. exist. And then once they're out, they're like, hey, man, that, we don't have that. What are you yeah. talking about, man? first day on first day in training they just show you all the pictures and all the videos they give you a tour of all the craft they've retrieved (laughs) and then in the end when you graduated and you're doing your thing within the government the government's like what no they don't exist what are you talking about yeah lesson 101 
Uh, aliens exist. Yeah. Lesson 102. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't exist. No, they don't. And the other witness is David Fravor, who is a retired Navy pilot. People may recognize this name because he was the one flying an FA-18 fighter jet during a routine training mission on November 14th, 2004, off the southern coast of California. He and the others in the mission would record what would come to be known as the Tic Tac video. Ah, yes, the world-famous Tic Tac video. Yes, almost as popular as this very segment that we're doing right now, Trey per Trey, man. Almost, but not quite. Let's face it. Ah, yes, yes. It's a great video, but this segment still takes the cake and always will. Mm. Yeah, so Burchett, Luna, and their constituents say that the American public has been lied to for many, many years. True. And they want the government, along with the military branches, to just come out and tell us the truth, man. Come on. Tell us the truth, man. Tell it to us. Tell me. Tell me. Jared Moskowitz, a Democratic representative, is also on Burchett's and Luna's team, making it a bipartisan effort even. They're coming together, the two wow. sides. Moskowitz says that uncovering this mystery is really just about the transparency Right. There are just two glaring issues with that statement. One, they want the government to tell us the truth. But by its very nature, the government is incapable of telling the truth. And two, they are expecting the government to be transparent. Again, by its very nature, the government cannot be transparent precisely because it is incapable of telling the truth. Oof. Can't argue with you there. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, this is a pretty big deal, and we'll most likely do a series of episodes on the whole UFO disclosure phenomena as the narrative plays out over the months and the years. But for the time being, we'll leave it there for today, which unfortunately makes this the end of the always stimulating and invigorating segment that is constantly talked about from the lips of babes. People are actually saying it's the ever-elusive fountain of youth, the tray. Poor Trey. I'm actually, I get younger every time we do a show, every time we present a Trey for Trey. Yeah, you look like you're about eight. Well, damn. Maybe I should stop. <laughs> Maybe we should stop doing Trey for Trey. Yeah. Now I put myself in danger. Okay, thank you for that, Scott. Always <laughs> a pleasure to know that you're making it melt out there in the world like Velveeta cheese with that velvety voice of yours. Really hits the G spot, apparently. Well, that's crafting for ya, man. <laughs> oh, hey, you, you like that? Sorry, we yeah. had to get some more yeah. brands, but uh, yeah, yeah, thanks, right. man. That's uh, really interesting. Appreciate that. Yeah, dude. I think that's I true. Mean, it's according. According to the emails. Oh, really? Well, maybe we should uh, elaborate on that. Yeah, later. All right. So <laughs> today we will be starting the first part of a two-part series on Roche Terrio and the infamous Ant Hill Kids from the 1980s up in Canada. It was a full-fledged Canadian cult who would eventually situate themselves all nice and tidy-like in a wooded area just outside of Thetford Mines, Canada, a small mining town which specialized in mining asbestos. Hmm. My favorite cereal is Asbestos. Mm. Really delicious. Yum, sounds yeah. delicious. Hell yeah. Yeah, like a bowl of that. <laughs> and just a heads up, we don't speak French, so our apologies for butchering these names and locations. 
Roche Terriol was born on May 16, 1947, roughly two months before the world-famous Roswell incident near Roswell, New Mexico. Just a little fun fact. Oh, that was truly fun. He was born in Riviere du Moulin, which is in the Saguenay Valley of Quebec, Canada, to his father, Hyacinth Terriol, who worked as a house painter, and to his mother, Pierrette Tremblay, who quietly assumed the role of a homemaker to the Terriol household. Both Hyacinth and Perriette were long-time Catholics, and doing it the Catholic way. Only missionary, with the eyes tightly closed, and all clothes on, even the shoes. The only way. They had many children, and raised them all the same. Roche was the oldest son, but the second of seven children. Oh, man. That is quite the lineup. Around 1950, the Terriol family moved to Thetford Mine in the eastern township area, and the reasons for the move are blurry, but it's probably for better employment opportunities for Hyacinth. The small town had one local school which taught general education up to the seventh grade, and Roche seemed like he was interested in pursuing further education afterward, as he did pretty well throughout his school years. But after graduating the seventh grade, he decided he didn't want to go any further, and all of his siblings soon followed suit. Yeah, it's definitely great when a seventh grader makes that kind of decision for his future at the ripe old age of, what is it, 12, 13, you know? Yeah, something like that. Perhaps it is more of an issue of the parents just wanting more help around the household, you know, utilizing the children as able-bodied workers to pretty much carry out all the chores while the parents would have more time to do the more pressing things like read the newspaper and check the stocks. Got to check the stock market every second, man. I'm sure it was just like, oh, bye, bye, bye. Nope, sell, 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 sell. Man, you just never know what to do. Am I buying or am I selling? <laughs> am I buying or am I selling? So fast-paced. <laughs> or, you know, the parents could just hang out in the car listening to Oral Roberts or Billy Graham or uh, some other evangelical preacher on the old AM radio. Maybe rearrange the silverware. Maybe do a visual redecoration of the living room. Hmm. You know, more leisurely type things. This was, however... A fairly typical element during those times, pretty much all over the world. You know, the parents would have numerous children with a limited education and then keep them around to pick up the slack, as in... Yes, free child labor. I mean, most of us have been there, right? Yeah. This then this then later becomes, you know, indentured servitude with a small weekly allowance for which you can then go buy the packs of gum that you've been getting with <laughs> a, the old sleight of hand. Yeah. Just a little magic, no big deal, man. Yeah. It's a magic trick. Yeah. Everybody likes a little magic. Hey, mister, look at this. Slide a hand. Now you, uh, now you see it. <laughs> now you now don't. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole aim was to have more hands to help around the house to rake the dirt. Or if there was a farm or animals that needed attention and care, the kids could then, you know, pretty much do all the grunt work. While the parents played croquet with the neighbors, sipping Mai Tais and discussing the previous month's ruined potluck because Becky didn't bring the casserole again. It was getting really frustrating. Yeah, I'd be pissed. Damn good casserole. Just yeah. fucking the show up, Becky. Becky. Six weeks I'm talking in a row. Six man. weeks, Becky. So it is here in the Eastern Township in Thetford Mines that Roche became a member, pretty much by force by his dad, of the Union des Electors, or Union of Directors, which is a Catholic group often referred to as the White Berets, who are still in operation today, actually, I think mostly in Canada. The Union of Electors was found in, I think, Quebec, Canada in 1939 by Louis Even and Gilbert Côté-Mercier. And their mission statement was to promote the development of a better world, a more Christian society through the diffusion and implementation of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church 
in every sector of society, especially the economic field. Oh, oh, pardon. They would call themselves Pilgrims of St. Michael and wear their white berets holding meetings and go door to door to preach about the movement and to distribute their leaflets which preached Catholicism as the union of directors saw it. Pick and choose whatever works best for you. I mean, that's what I do. I think that's what everyone does. And so it would be. Going door to door to preach is exactly what Roche would regularly do as a boy, usually with his father. He did not enjoy it one bit, and that's probably due to the fact that his father forced him to do it. And what typically happens when fathers or any parent forces their children to do anything they don't want to do? Well, let me tell you. You build up a shitload of resentment, and then you go make some mistakes, and then you go project the consequences onto the rest of the people around you for the rest of your life. And they rebel. Kids rebel to that shit, and they rebel hard as fuck, so over time, this led Roche to despise not only the Catholic religion, but all organized religion. I mean, to be fair, you know, as you're a kid and you're kind of growing up and you're starting to figure things out in the world a little bit, you start to see, especially when a doctrine is being forced upon you, there, there's some things where you're like, oh, I don't know about all that, but you're just a kid, so nobody listens to you. Yeah. Roche and his large family lived a pretty simple existence. There was nothing especially worthy to note about any particular member of the Terriel family other than Roche. And so now we can move forward with this cult classic. Oh, man. Talk about yeah. magic. Working with words. <laughs> Roche himself craved something more at this point in his life. He knew he had something to offer the world. He just didn't know what it was. Little Roche was a little more ambitious in terms of wanting to be who he wanted to be on his terms, according to his beliefs. His anticipations grew as he realized that he needed to do something with his blossoming intellect. He certainly held himself in high esteem and enjoyed any attention from others that he could solicit, good or bad. It simply didn't matter to him. He relished in the spotlight regardless of what it was for. Roche would actively manipulate others and use lies just so he could bask in the feelings that he got from it, even if his behavior could potentially ruin other people's lives. As he breezed through his childhood and adolescence, he discovered that by accusing his parents of physically abusing him, he could get all of the sympathy he wanted from those around him. These accusations were fervently denied by his parents, obviously, but little shit Roche never relinquished his indictments toward them, and you can only imagine how this affected not only his parents, but his entire family. Oh, yeah, imagine you're trying to raise this kid, you're trying to do right by him, and all he wants to do is turn around and stab you in the back. That'd be terrible. As soon as he decided that he had garnished all of the education that he needed at the seventh grade, being 13 years old, and then quitting school altogether, the studious young man began to read and study the Old Testament assiduously and painstakingly, and in such a way that, as he perceived it, it was literally the law of the land. And sure enough, in his mind, the apocalypse would soon come and bring the world to an end. Boy, if I had a nickel. He studied the Old Testament day and night, hours on end, often being the only thing he would allow himself to do. Very ironic, considering how much he wanted to rebel against the door-to-door -door preaching earlier in his life. The way he saw it, there was no escaping what was to come, and in so doing, he joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Again, if I had a nickel. <laughs> the Seventh-day Adventists, in nearly every sect, and there are many, practice stringent rules toward their body, health, and sex, among many other things. For sure. Generally, they encourage sexual abstinence for both men and women before marriage, and they disapprove of cohabitation between couples. 
They strictly oppose homosexuality. They oppose abortions. They don't wear anything that could be construed as being provocative. So their clothing is very simple, modest, and neat. My kind of people. They also oppose tattoos and piercings and the wearing of jewelry, including wedding bands. And what is probably the most important thing above all else is that it is necessary to understand that women were always to be obedient to men, as the sacred scriptures preach. Oh yeah, women essentially play a servant role to their husbands under that religion, and they would need to be docile and not speak much, and basically live a life of submission. Rubbing oil on horrendous cheese feet, fetching water from the water well, you know where Timmy fell. Oh yeah, yeah. And just being quiet over in a corner when they're not cooking food for the man or doing laundry. Should they ever get Timmy out of there? Oh, well, we can go check later. Okay. So now there are some sects of the Seventh-day Adventists that are more tolerant or unpretentious in their views toward these things. And some do allow the wearing of wedding rings, necklaces, and your basic jewelry of sorts. And some do allow the wearing of more revealing clothing. And some do allow homosexual couples into their brethren. But we are talking about the Seventh-day Adventists that Roche Terriol converted to back in like, what, 1960, I believe. And the sect that he joined into and took so very seriously was extremely conservative and took the term gospel truth to a whole new level. They lived the Old Testament as if each word was spoken by God directly to them. Oh, meh. Roche would read the Old Testament over and over, studying every sentence and living at standards to the T. He didn't smoke tobacco. He didn't drink alcohol. He didn't use drugs. And he didn't eat unhealthy foods. Roche lived a life free of sins, as they say. He was fully convinced that there was a literal war between good and evil, and that this war would inevitably bring an end to the world. I'm starting to believe it. I am too. This is kind of scary. Should we get out now, Scott, before we get in too deep? I'm going to stand here and take it. Over the years, Roche completely ingrained himself into the church and became a regular speaker of his congregation and would become very popular amongst the flock. He started to lead workshops that were aimed to help people quit smoking, and I think stop drinking alcohol as well. And he did really well at it, actually. Many church members were able to quit their unhealthy habits entirely, and they loved Roche for his dedicated work. People were really taking a liking to this charismatic guy who seemed to truly care about others. I mean, on the surface, there are a few things that this guy is doing really well, right? Things that sure. maybe all people could aspire to, but there, there's always, with that kind of fanaticism... There's always a fine line. He wasn't a totally unattractive looking guy in his earlier years, and he had a certain charm and did really well with public speaking. People were kind of drawn to him because of it. That's how it all starts. The charisma, good at public speaking, a.k.a. manipulating, but even better at believing your own bullshit. The whole mix really draws people in. Oh, yeah, time and time again. And so this is pretty much the rock-solid routine for the next seven years. So let's jump ahead. Just a little bit. Yep. Let's go ahead and get into the old time machine here. Okay. Boop, beep, bop, boop, boop, boop. And here, here we go. <laughs> Traveling through time. <laughs> awesome. That was freaking sweet. That's technical stuff, man. Whoa. Going through time. Whoa. Whoa. Land. Francine Grenier was an unassuming girl from a neighboring town who had met Roche and was swooned by his enigmatic charm immediately. Come November 11th, 1967, the two were newlyweds. Roche was 20 by this time, but we do not know the age of Francine. It is said, though, that Francine was a good wife, 
which meant that she was submissive and quiet and gave him sexual satisfaction whenever he wanted. The couple would eventually move to the sprawling Montreal area, and while in Montreal, Francine became pregnant on two separate occasions, giving birth to two sons, Roche Sylvain and Francois Theriol. It was during this time of blissful marriage to Francine that Roche would develop painful ulcers in his stomach that eventually forced him to seek medical intervention and ultimately surgery. There were, however, complications with the surgery which left Roche to suffer permanent pain and discomfort for the rest of his life. This constant pain left him in agony, which only made his overall disposition rather intolerable for others to be around. But, whether for better or for worse, these events led Roche to become entranced in the art of medicine. Oh man, another road to go whole hog down. He started reading a lot about the human anatomy, surgical procedures, medications, and general physical health. This doesn't sound like it's going anywhere good. All right, three years go by, and Roche relocates the family back to Thetford Mines, where Francine and the boys would settle in. This is also where Roche would begin to lay out the groundwork for what would unfortunately become one of Canada's most notorious religious cults. And they would come to be known as the Ant Hill Kids. Oh, cute. That's actually really cute and very playful. While back in Thetford Mines, Roche would financially support his little family of four by selling woodwork like bed frames and shit and other artistic stuff that he would make. All while in his skin-tight, marinere sleeves, only about seven inches too short, wearing his little French beret. It's unclear if Francine was allowed to work a real job, let alone go far away from the household at all. I don't know what the hell she was doing. Fuck, that must have been hella boring, though, just to be out there, stuck at home in the woods there. Nothing fun to do other than hang out and take care of your children. <laughs> Damn, well, when you... When you paint it like that, yeah, it sounds it sounds pretty <laughs> shitty. <laughs> at least in the United States, especially during this time, housewives were pretty much stuck at home, but they had their stash of red wine and Xanax to bring the idea of enjoyment down to a dull, drunken stupor. And benzodiazepines and alcohol mixed can, you know, leave you with a uh, little amnesia-like symptoms. So for those down-and-out housewives back then, life was literally one day at a time and then a reset, sort of like Groundhog's Day, if you will. As long as he didn't realize you were on constant repeat, yeah, it'd be great. Like, you know, sort of having a loose kind of dementia or something. Roche would often travel to Quebec City to sell his wooden artwork, which which was about a 40-mile trip one way, or about an hour and 15 minutes by car. And to Francine, it appeared that he had a few connections there in Quebec who would buy his wood decorations. But were there? Mm, no. That's probably right. But... There was something else in Quebec City that Roche enjoyed going to see. Can you guess what that was? I'm going to guess maybe uh, an arcade or maybe some hot yoga. Those are great freaking guesses. Roche was making more and more trips to La Vie au Saint-Clocher, or the City of a Hundred Steeples, or Sin City, as it was called during the Prohibition era, and Francine was not oblivious to their growing lack of financial security. Gambling? Soon it became perfectly clear to Francine that Roche was dipping his toes in other women's Niagara Falls. <laughs> Roche began a relationship with a woman named Giselle Lafrance, and there wasn't much of an attempt to keep it a secret. Francine was not happy with him at all, and the final blow came in the form of a local bank foreclosing on the family's house, and they were uh, forced out. 
It was at this point that Francine gathered what she had to her name and left Roche, never to look back. This separation didn't bother Roche one bit. He barely blinked an eye, and he carried on with Giselle. And through his alluring preaching with his deep knowledge of the Old Testament, he continued to gain supporters, or to be exact, we should call them followers at this juncture. Feeling enthralled by being the center of attention, which is what Roche always desired since he was a kid, and it must have just made him as hard as a hockey stick. <laughs> he began to impose and flaunt what power he believed he had within the church. After a short discussion among the church leaders, it was agreed that they would ask Roche to leave, and surprisingly, he did. Wow. Well, good for him. From here, Roche decided that he would move again. But this time, it would be to St. Marie, Quebec, Canada. It is here that he opens a homeopathic clinic and continues to lead his self-help workshops. These are the years when Roche seriously begins believing that he is a savior, that he is the one who will bring peace to the earth, that he can save the world from the apocalypse that is quickly approaching. Yeah, I mean, the scene was set, right? The stage was set. He had, everything had dissolved in his life. He got kicked out of his own church. So now it's time for the extremeness to carry in. He continues to carry on his preaching, incorporating the Seventh-day Adventist teachings into his own, but corrupting them with minor alterations. With his ever-magnetic charm, his energy and passion, his motivational pontifications, and unwavering sex appeal, he was able to draw people in left and right. People who were predispositioned to want to grab onto something that sounded like a better life. People desperate for something, for anything. Despite there being no guarantee of a fruitful outcome, people would give everything they had in their names just to see what's behind curtain number three. By 1977... Roche Terriol is entirely convinced that he is God-sent and has amassed a fellowship of eight or nine other people, all aged between 18 and 24, including a six-month-old baby girl belonging to one of the female followers. Roche wanted to start a new society, one where people could think for themselves and truly live free in this communal setting, one in which he would be the leader, the guru, the ascended one. He would give his teachings to anyone who wanted to listen. And for free. Oh, wow. I mean, nobody can pass up a freebie, so that would be very appealing. I certainly wouldn't. I'd be sitting down. Hopefully, they have those little, you know, like Costco. They have little freebie, like those. Yeah, the samples. You know, uh, the samples, little like uh, <laughs> smoothies. If they had those, I'd be in. Yep. Over the next year, it was becoming apparent that Roche was becoming increasingly paranoid and had been drinking regularly, which went against what he preached. Oh, man. Well... That has happened a few times over the years when it comes to organized religion. By 1978, Roche had declared that the end of the world would begin by February of the following year, and his following quickly grew to 17 members. This included four men, nine women, and four children. The large group would pick up from St. Marie, Quebec, and move to a mountainside near the village of St. Hogues, a roughly seven-hour journey east by car. This mountainside commune would come to be called Eternal, Eternal Mountain. Mountain. Sounds like a theme park with all of the fun rides. Technically, there was only one ride, and that was Roche. Oh, bazinga. <laughs> Eternal Mountain was first started as a simple campsite made of tents and makeshift shacks, while the ants, if you want to call them that, began work on constructing a series of cabins by hand. Roche essentially acted as a foreman, and gave everyone else directions on what to do while he watched on and made sure that there was order, commenting on the quality of craftsmanship or lack thereof. 
and ridiculing his flock for the most minor of mistakes. By this point, every single one of his followers had sold off all of their personal property, their cars, houses, land, literally everything. And this, of course, is a common theme of these more, I guess, successful cults where the leader, a Moses figure, convinces his flock of followers, his sheep, to sell off all of their worldly possessions and give all of the finances to the leader or the leaders of the cult so that their belief system could be financially sustained in order to grow in both public interest and in numbers so that eventually, by the time of the great cosmic battle, Armageddon, because that really hits the sentiment, they would have plenty of followers to fight the good fight. Well, once again, when you put it like that, now I kind of want to join even more. Doesn't that sound fun? Let's do it. These people have to abandon all of the people they once knew and loved, all of their friends, all of their family, unless their family and friends join the cult as well, of course, and they would be encouraged, if not forced, to forget the lives that they once had, but not for nothing. They are given the promise of a life of true freedom, redemption, salvation, all before the war between good and evil kicks off. Let's do it. So what do you do in the meantime? I mean, you get the crew together, make some balloon animals, fry a couple wieners, you know. No. You put up a booth at the farmer's market. Roche and his group would supplement their bankroll by selling baked goods and, of course, carved woodwork to the nearby towns. Oh, you work. Fun. Yeah. I guess if there's time to lean, there's time to clean, you know? Ugh, hate that saying. You ever worked at a restaurant? Fucking your supervisor, just like the dick, says that to you all the time? No, mine just beat me. Just beat you with, yeah, threw burgers at you and shit. <laughs> Hot grease. <laughs> yeah. And by most accounts, their baking was top-notch. Real Mary Berry and Paul Hollywood shit. Real excellent stuff. Oh, man. Yes, well, Mary Berry and Paul, they that's an unmatched duo right there. So, again, if that were the case... They would have got, there's so many times they would have got me into this cult, bro. I'm telling you. If Mary Berry and Paul were running it, man, that'd be the <laughs> oh, coolest dude. cult. Always baking. It's, it'd still be around. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> February of 1979 had come, the moment they were all anxiously awaiting, but the world didn't end. There was no war going on between the duality of good and evil, no brimstone and fire, no cosmic battle, at least not as far as they could see it. Yet. Wow, that is ominous. But Roche had his way with words, and considering these people had stayed with him up to this point, he was able to convince everyone that he simply made a tiny miscalculation. A simple mistake is all, because even the biblical Moses made mistakes, right? It happens, not a big deal. Yeah, I'd be like, was that between the booze or the gambling that you made that little mistake there? <laughs> yeah, was it all the sex? What's going on? He's... <laughs> yeah. Slipped my mind. Roche made sense of it by explaining that the differences between the Israelite calendar and the Roman calendar threw him off. God time and human time just weren't the same. So Roche went back to the drawing boards and worked out the discrepancies. I'm just imagining like little stick figures, like the world. <laughs> the world has like crude flame, like a little circle with a couple like oh my crude God. continents, has little flames on it. And there's a stick figure that's like wait, counting down. It's like getting closer. It says like countdown three question mark five <laughs> <Yeah>. question mark. <laughs> so life in the commune cult continued on, and so did the suffering. Not only were the men and women not allowed to have sex with each other without his approval, 
Even if they were married, Scott, they couldn't even speak to each other outside of Roche's presence. Whoa. Out of the cult. I just would have left right there. Gone. You go up to Ro- Hey, Roche. Roche, hey, um, can, can Sandra and I have sex? You know, it's like you have to go get permission. Yeah, he's just like, no! <laughs> there's time to lean, there's time to clean. Yeah. Now keep building that shitty barn you've been working on for ten years. And whatever Roche wanted, Roche would get. He would demand that two people be married even when they were already in a relationship with other people. And he would officiate those marriages without being certified to do so. And I don't know if these same people spoke out against the arrangements or if they just went along with it because they were so disillusioned and or fearful. I just, I don't know. What I do know is that not only was he marrying his flock amongst themselves, he was also, quote, unquote, marrying all the females with himself. Everyone was married to each other as long as it was male, female, and every female was also married to Roche. What in the actual fuck? But Scott, what comes with numerous wives? Uh, numerous credit cards being sent to collections? Hey, I'm just kidding. That joke's not PC, <laughs> man. I'm just joking. But, you know, it probably could come. I could see it maybe possibly coming with a hell of a lot of problems. Well, yeah, probably. Most likely. But with the hell of a lot of wives comes a hell of a lot of sex. Ah, yes. Cult sex. I hear it's the best. Like, you know, for one person, usually the guy at the top. Yeah. And what typically comes with the hell of a lot of sex without those pesky condoms or contraceptives, statistically speaking? Uh, statistically speaking, diseases, but also, and I, you can, you can fact check me on this, but I do believe that's how babies are made, Coop. Um, let me see, let me fact check this. (laughs) Don't do it! (laughs) How are babies made? Uh. (laughs) That's jury's out, huh? (laughs) Uh. And looks like you are correct there, Scott. That is how babies are made. <laughs> yeah. And by the mid-1980s, Roche had increased his flock by impregnating all nine women of the cult, resulting in anywhere between 20 and 26 babies. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still stuck on <laughs> you figuring out that's our babies. Did you just now learn that? That's great. Everybody, he just learned that. That's You, you saw it. You I, saw learning man. occur. I'm not going to sleep tonight. That was traumatic what I just saw. Yeah. Early on, if anyone broke a rule or was disobedient to Roche, he would personally punish them by hitting them with belts or smacking them around, all while being berated verbally. Over time, this progressed to the use of hammers and other blunt instruments. Wow, that is extreme. And these people would suffer extreme abuse at the most trivial of things. Such as when they would, you know, be out selling their goods to people, they were expected to sell a certain quota and bring back a certain amount of cash. And if they didn't do so, they would be hit. And usually, whoever came back with the least amount of money, that person would be abused. Essentially, what it came down to was that Roche would terrorize, threaten, abuse, mutilate, and eventually kill whenever he wanted and for whatever reason he felt. Also, This once godly man who abstained from drugs and alcohol was constantly drunk now, and Roche was not a happy drunk. And one of the worst things was that his rages would come out of nowhere at times, completely unprovoked. 
I can't even imagine just the environment there and all these people are cut off from their families and their loved ones. You're just stuck with this guy. Not a good situation. They believed they believed they were stuck with this guy. Right. Other punishments included being tied up or hung from the ceiling. And get this, Scott. They would have all of their hair tweezed from their body, one hair at a time. Now, who's carrying these out? Because usually the leader will have the followers kind of turn on each other, right, and abuse each other. But everyone's just expected to be okay with it afterwards. And it also kind of keeps them out of the crosshairs. True. Yeah, yeah. We see that a lot in cults. And that is definitely true here. Roche would usually do the torturing or AKA punishments, you know, himself. But over time, he started finding joy in ordering his flock to inflict the tortures on each other. Plus, some people probably jumped because they realized, you know, it was all survivalists do that if they're doing it, they're probably not going to have it done to them. Right. You know, there was one particular punishment that Roche enjoyed doling out. Roche would personally shit on his followers. And he would also have them shit on each other as so-called punishments. Man, this is truly getting crazy now. He would also force them to fight each other in what he called gladiator tournaments. They would be put into a dirt ring and literally fight each other like a couple of MMA fighters until Roche had enough and became bored of it. Other punishments included forcing them to eat their own shit. Oh, and of course, man. he would also have them eat each other's shit if they did something he didn't like. Something as innocent as making eye contact with the opposite sex while thinking Roche wasn't around. Even if they were quote unquote married, they couldn't look at each other. Whew, that is insane, dude. It wasn't just feces that they would be forced to eat. They would be forced to eat insects and small animals like mice and rats, sometimes after they were clearly decaying. Ugh, no. So gross. Yeah. Scott, have you ever had a really bad toothache that was just so bad you were legitimately contemplating grabbing some pliers and just going to town at yanking that fucker out of yourself? Yes. Um, I have had that kind of horrible pain where you just like want your whole jaw to fall off your body so you don't have to deal with that, and it's just like it makes you feel desperate, right? Yeah, yeah, really desperate. Roche would remove his followers' teeth himself if they ever complained of a toothache. Or he would have his followers remove other followers' teeth without any form of pain reliever, not even booze or aspirin or anything, nothing. I mean, I could see it, one, because he is a sadist and enjoys pain, but two, you don't want your followers going into the doctor and talking to people outside of exactly. your cult. You can't have people leaving. You got He's isolating them exactly and it wasn't like they had been complaining for a couple of days or anything like that it was pretty much the instant that anyone complained about it he would basically immediately bark orders and demand strict adherence to his every word oh man could you imagine you'd be like ah, i think my tooth hurts you see roche looking at you're like oh never mind feels great ah, it's never <laughs> felt better yeah and scott he would do the same thing with fingernails and toenails no no not the nails bro oh my yeah dude and this is just the tip of the iceberg man tis just a flesh wound (laughs) tis but a scratch this is also where we will have to end today's episode ah next week we will finish this two-parter on roche terriol and the anthill kids cult so far this is one of the most fucked up cults that I've heard about. I know Jonestown was pretty bad, obviously, because, you know, it had like the mass suicide event and right. just the aftermath was so horrific in that sense um, because of the, the loss of life. But just like everything these people had to go through. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. 
yeah, this this cult is unlike any others, man. Because usually the the leader doesn't abuse his flock to to the point that right. Usually they want the flock to think that they're the best, most caring, most awesomest right. person in the world. But yeah, the Ant Hill kids, Roche Terriel, just a ruthless, egotistical, self centered maniac. Absolutely. Next week should be pretty intense if this is where we're leaving off with the story. Oh, it's gonna get bad. I mean, it's gonna get. I mean, it's already bad, but it's going to get really bad. Well, everyone will have to tune in for that. But in the meantime, how about we read a couple of listener emails? They're truly fantastic. I mean, as usual. For sure. All right. Well, this first one, thank you, comes to us from Michael H. out of Vermont, right here in the good old U.S. of A. Hey, guys. Nice show. My girlfriend's brother actually told me about it, and it's kind of weird because he doesn't really like me. So either way, he was either being a dick or he was being kind of nice for once. I guess I may never know. But anyway, I'm digging the content. It's pretty good, pretty funny, pretty messed up too, but so am I. So that says a lot. Uh, side note, I feel like a lot of our followers are kind of like that. But, yeah, yeah, true. We're like that. And he goes on to say, uh, I really like the Pets Who Murder episode. Holy shit, I'm seriously reconsidering the puppy I just bought for my girlfriend. Come on, man. <laughs> I would too. Probably a really bad idea, right? All right, well, that's all I have for you guys. Just wanted to say what's up and tell you guys that I like the show. Oh, yeah. Hey, Wayne Dale. Fuck you. <laughs> That's pretty awesome, man. Yes. Thank yes. you, Michael, for He gets that. it. Fuck you, Wayne Dale. He gets it. He gets it. Hey, thanks, Michael H. out of Vermont. I'm sure your girlfriend's brother was being a genuine sweetheart for recommending this show and not being a dick. Yeah, he seems like a pretty chill guy. Props to him for doing that. And yeah, Michael, you should definitely reconsider that puppy because you know that one day you're just going to wake up and that thing is going to be eating or have already eaten your girlfriend while you were asleep. And he's just going to be licking your face. Yeah, and there's no peanut butter laying around either. No! <laughs> but thank you so much, Michael. Always appreciate the kind words. And this next one is from Alexis M. From none other than the great state of New York. So shout out to our Big Apple listeners. Fuck yeah, New York. They are always vying to be the top listeners to this podcast. It's usually a fight between New York, Colorado, Georgia, and Utah. And currently... Colorado is taking the lead, then it's Utah, and then it's New York. So Alexis M. from New York says, oh, I'm going to try to do her, uh, her New York female accent here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, guys, I'm really liking your show. That's pretty much all I wanted to say. But I guess since I'm already typing this, Scott is true. Your voice makes women melt. <laughs> it's at least made me melt a couple times. Whoa, man, Jeez. I don't know if I can read this anymore. Usually in traffic... Coop, your voice is a very close second. Ah, I told you. Whatever. It's almost like a much needed round two. So it's very appreciated (laughs) as well. Wink, wink. Oh, okay. Damn. Good God. Thank you, Alexis M. from New York. And see, this is why I personally love New York. Well, Coop, how does it feel to be second choice? Let me ask you that. Well, it feels fine, Scott. I'm not always a second choice, but when I am, I still feel like I'm the first. So, Damn. I can't even compete with that logic. So huge, 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 if you know what I'm saying. Thank you to Alexis. I very much appreciate knowing that I'm the source for traffic orgasms. It's very good. Yeah, that's crazy. Just be safe out there. Buckle up. Go the speed limit. Keep your eyes on the road. Check your mirrors and make sure that you check that oil. I am sure she's checking that oil. So, wow, those are great emails. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We have the best listeners out there. The freaking best. All right. Is that it? Yep. That is it. Well, all right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. And remember to subscribe so you can be notified when our next episode comes out. Also, like and share wherever you can and leave us some really good reviews as well. 
And come back next week where we will finish this two-part series on Roche Terriol and the Antio Kids Cult out of Canada. You can email us with story suggestions or just reach out and say hello. Our email is paranautica at gmail.com. That's P-A-R-A-N-A-U-G-H-T-I-C-A at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Paranautica or check us out on Facebook, the Paranautica Podcast. And if you'd like, and we'd be super appreciative if you would, you can help support the show by making a small donation of any amount or a large donation of any amount. You can do so very simply if you're listening on Spotify. Just scroll down on our page and you'll find a button for that. Also, you can help by going to our Facebook page and clicking our Ko-Fi page or the PayPal link. And you can make a donation of any amount as a one-time donation or you can become a monthly subscriber. Either way, We love you all, and we are grateful to have you here listening in. You guys are the best. With that, thank you all, and may great things happen in your life today. Remember to fasten the Velcro straps on your shoes, look both ways when crossing the street, and most importantly, don't walk into the street if you see a car coming. Yeah, use the crosswalks, man. That's what they're there for. Yo.